All right, good morning, church. <clears throat> we only have a couple messages left in the book of Daniel. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. I know some of you have, have it on your phones, but who's got a Bible? Who's got a Bible? Or who's got a Bible on their phone? You can hold your phone up. You know why I'm doing that? Because today you're going to read with me. We're going to, we're going to interact with God's words. We go through this, one of the, the last parts of, of Daniel, and... <clears throat> This is important because I decided to preach this sermon in a way that really looked at the specificity of what Daniel's talking about. Um, so, as we are, first I got to find it in my Bible. There we go. So, as we are coming to the end, all through the second half of Daniel, he's been talking about visions and dreams. And these have been giving us, from God through his prophet, the, the final kingdoms that are going to reign on earth before Christ comes back. The very last kingdom, a global kingdom, before Christ comes back will be the most tyrannical, evil, global kingdom that has ever existed. That has been one of the points of Daniel as he's gone through this. Last week, we only covered four verses, and that was God's prophecy about His people. Daniel, this is for you and your people. My plan, there's 70 weeks, which we said was 490 years, and it's going to bring us to the end, okay? Now we're going to see how these two things converge. His plan for Jews and then the, the last Gentile kingdom, they, they come together at the end, and I titled the message today, the last battle. This is going to be the last battle. And then Christ comes back and he sets up his global kingdom and there will be peace on earth. And that's what we all desire and we look forward to. Now today, in, as I was reading and preparing for this, I came across a story about a professor who was teaching at an academic university, and he was going to talk about the book of Daniel. And in his class, there was a bunch of young uh, men and women studying. And he began the class by telling them, now listen, students, this is the first thing I want you to know about the book of Daniel is that the book of Daniel is actually just history. It was written during the, the Maccabean period, the revolt of the Maccabeans, that's in between the Old and New Testament, where much of what he wrote about had already happened in history. And that's in the same uh, vein as people like Josephus and Tacitus and <clears throat> other historians of antiquity who wrote about actual events that were either happening at that moment or they had, had researched. And so he's telling them this, The Daniel is just a history book. And one of the students, a young man, raised his hand and said, but professor, how can that be if in the Gospels, in Matthew 24, Jesus says Daniel wrote the book? And he said, a little taken back, you know, being pushed back by students, he said, young man, let me tell you something. I know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus. That's what he said. And the strange thing is, is that many of the people students in that class, they're pastors today in churches and leading in churches. And they are being taught that in, that in that preparation period. Now, that can't be Jesus's truth. He can't be Jesus if he's untruth. If he said Daniel wrote it, it is just one way to get at it. But, but 
in Christianity, we know Daniel and the Jews knew this. They accepted the book for the years that it says that it was written, and it's prophetic. They wrote about it, and then in time, it happened. And that's one of the amazing things about validity of the Bible. Now, the reason I'm going to walk through this chapter, last week we did four verses, this week it's 45, okay? But we're going to move through it, and I actually want to read it, and, I, and we have to do it that way. You know why? Because there's so much specificity about historical events written. So it's like over here, the angel came and gave Daniel the message. Remember, he was praying for three weeks, and he was like, where's the answer to my prayer? Finally, the angel shows up, and there was a, there was a, 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 a demon that met him in the sky and was holding him back. They, the, the, the demons didn't want this message to come, and then Michael the archangel came and fought and allowed me to come and give you this message. That's where we left off, and this is the message. I'm about to go through the message that the angel brought him that the demons did not want Daniel to give to hear. That's what we're going to cover today. And there's so much specificity. So you're going to see me do this. I'm going to come over here and say, they wrote it right here. And I'm going to come over here and say, it happened in history over and over again through this book. So I've titled this, The Last Battle of Man. And even though there's a lot of verses, there's only two points, only two points. The first point is this, a battle-weary land. The land that the Jews live on, Palestine, this area, is going to see so much fighting. You know, America's not used to that. All the wars we fought mostly have been everywhere else on the globe except the Civil War. And yet, you're going to see that in this chapter, one of the messages being given is the future is there's going to be a lot of war passing through your land. A lot of superpowers around you are going to fight, okay? So I titled the first point, A Battle-Weary Land, verse 1, chapter 11, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, Darius the Mede is co-regent with Cyrus, king of Persia. That's the king. And we're going to see this unfolding of kings now. Verse 2, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now remember, this is, this is uh, prophetic, right? So Cyrus is the king right now, Darius the co-regent, and he's giving him prophecy. Three more kings are going to come, and then a fourth who's going to be greater is what he's saying. So I've titled this... Uh, Actually, the way I think about this is it's the A-list leaders, because I'm going to give you all these kings I'm going to give you. Rise of Ahasuerus is the first one. They all start with A. And this is, the, this is actually the, the first major king. But he says there's going to be three. The first, and that's what, exactly what happened. After Cyrus died, his son Cambyses came along. Then there was Pseudo-Smeritus. Pseudo-Smeritus, the word pseudo means false or fake. And he had that name because he was an imposter. He was a lookalike. He looked like Cyrus's son. Somehow he got into the position. They thought he was the real guy. And he got himself on the throne until he was discovered. And then they got rid of him. Then the next guy was Darius Hystapsis. But then we get to number four, which is Xerxes, also called Ahasuerus. 
And this is what the angel said. There's going to be three more, but the fourth shall be far richer than the others. He will become strong through his riches, and he will stir up Greece. And that's exactly what happened. Xerxes is actually in the book of Esther. That's his name in that book. And he had one of the largest armies the world had ever seen, and he marched against uh, <clears throat> Greece. It says he would stir up Greece, and so here it is. This is what happened. He marched against Greece and lost, came back with his tail between his legs, licking his wounds, and was defeated by them. That was Ahasuerus. That was uh, the fourth one that rose up greater than those three. But then he says in verse 4, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, we, we kind of already know this. This is a review because we've already gone through these. Alexander the Great is the next A. He's the one that came after Ahasuerus. And it was exactly like he said. We studied him in one of the sermons. His kingdom was far-reaching, the largest that super, global superpower that the world had known, went all the way to Asia, all through Europe. He, was, he did whatever he willed. He had that kind of power. But at the age of 33, he died very quickly. And did you hear what Daniel was told? His kingdom will be taken over, but not by his posterity. His family will not continue on. It's going to be broken and then divided up. And we already know that that's what happened. But I, I don't know if I told you this, but he did have family. He had one illegitimate son. He had a legitimate son, but it was still in the womb when he died. Uh, his wife gave birth to him shortly after his death. And he had a brother, but he was mentally handicapped. All of them were murdered within a few months after his death. And then four generals took over his kingdom, broke it up into four. Cassander took Macedonia, Lysim Lysimachus took Thrace and Asia Minor, Ptolemy took Egypt, and Seleucus took Syria. Now I put up there <clears throat> king of the south and king of the north. I'm going to tell you why, but just going to come back over here. He, he wrote it, and in history it happened, and now... For the rest of this chapter, the emphasis is going to be on king of the south and king of the north. Because for 200 years, there will be war surrounding the region of Palestine and the Jews. And they're going to experience other powers fighting. And they will be a passive bystander to it all without any power to stop it. 200 years of the north and the south fighting. Now, in verses 5 to 10 is the prophecy about Ptolemy and Seleucus, the king of the north and the king of the south, and what happens. Verse 5, king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he 
who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. You say, what are you talking about here? Well, all of that prophecy, it's written, it came true. North and the south, <clears throat> struggling for power. And one of the ways sometimes they brought about peace was one of the kings would say, you know what? In order to unite better, I'm going to send my daughter over here. You can marry my daughter and then you'll have assurance. I'm not going to attack you because my daughter's your wife, right? That's a great idea. So that's what happened. Look what he said. Exactly that. A daughter can be given in marriage, but here's what happened in history. The king already had a wife, and so in order to make this peace treaty work, he had to divorce her. I'm going to divorce you. Now I'm marrying this daughter. She's coming. Now we're married, right? Well, the uh, divorced wife didn't like that, and history records that when this new wife got there, the divorced wife poisoned her, killed her, and the entire entourage that had traveled with her. And so exactly how he wrote it, basically everyone lost out in the attempt to try to, to bring about peace. He, it, as you read through it, right, and there's going to be an arrangement. She shall not retain the strength of her, her arm. He and his arm shall not endure. She shall be given up and her attendants. And that's what happened in history. It was written. It happened in history. So everyone lost. <clears throat> but this daughter that got sent up there to be married had a brother. And the brother didn't like what happened. Look what verse 7 says. And from a branch, from her roots. I just wrote right above that. Brother. Because history tells us the brother didn't like that his sister went up there and ended up murdered. And so what did he do? He shall arise at his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall, pre and, and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Basically, if you read history, this is exactly what happens. The sister got sent up there, arranged marriage, murder happens. There's no peace. The brother wants uh, <clears throat> revenge. He rises up, gets power, goes up there, fights with them, takes their wealth, and brings it back to the south. It was written about, it happened in history. That's going to be the pattern all through this. That's why we're walking through it. To me, the value of this is to see the specificity and what happened. Now, verse 10 we see the rise of the next great king in this sequence. Another A, the rise of Antiochus, the great king of the north. He is going to attack the south again, <clears throat> Egypt. And read with me in verse 10. It says, His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces. So you have the brother who came up here, defeated him, stole their goods, brought it back to the south. Now the king of the north... Antiochus rises up with a multitude of great forces. He shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Now I underlined in my Bible the phrase overflow and pass through. That's important because the emphasis is being made that Israel is passive. Israel's sitting there. And now the south came up here, destroyed, came back through their land. The north now has a great multitude, marches through their land, passes through their land. Israel, 
this bystander to these great conflicts, seeing armies go back and forth across her holy land. That emphasis is made. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Now, he wrote about it in history. It happened. Antiochus the Great, you can read about it. He raised, the Bible says, a multitude of great forces. He raised 75,000 strong, an army that marched through Israel, overflowed and passed through. It says the south, in rage, fought back. And in the end, what we get is no winner. There's no clear winner. So what happens? King of the north, verses 13 through 15 talk about how the north is going to again raise another multitude. In verse 13, it says, For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. The first was 75,000 strong. He's going to raise a greater one. Abundant supplies. In verse 14, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. Now, and then he says there, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Now, he wrote about it. It happened. The first army was 75,000. Antiochus the Great raised another army, 73,000 soldiers, foot soldiers, but 5,000 cavalry. And then it's even recorded he had 73 elephant regiments. A new, a new type of, of warfare. Imagine elephants marching through Israel now on its way to battle. And Israel's seeing all this. And then it says, and notice what it says, it uses Israel as a staging ground. It comes in and it's gathering its forces, its ability to now move even farther south to set up siege works to defeat the south. What's going to happen next? Verse 17, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him, look at this, this is a, a recycled plan, daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So the king of the north, I got elephants, I got 73,000 soldiers, I got 5,000 cavalry, we've got a siege going on, but we still can't break the back of our enemy. I got another plan. And the plan is I'm going to send my daughter down there, going to marry the king of, of the south. But notice what he says, right? Um, Terms of an agreement to perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. It's like she's a spy. I'm going to send my wife down there and she is going to be an insider for me. Now, do you know what story this is? I'm just wondering if you can guess what this is. It's famous. This is the story of Cleopatra. Most people know this story. 
And you didn't think Elizabeth Taylor was in the Bible. <laughs> that's the movie they made, right? She was the actress that played her, right? I think that's right, yeah. It was made before my time. It's written about here, and then it happens. And do you know the story of Cleopatra, right? She goes down there, but she falls in love with the Egyptian king and turns on her own father, and the plan fails. It's history, and the Bible writes about it, right? And it says this, after, so it, it, it will not stand or be to his advantage. So the king, it doesn't work. Verse 18, afterward, he shall, re, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. It was written, it's going to happen. Do you know what happened? So Cleopatra plan fails. So he turns his attention, the Bible says, the word coastlands. And in history, what happened was Antiochus went back towards the coastal regions of Greece. But there's a new power rising. And the new power is Rome. And it says there's a commander who stopped him. And in history, the Romans stopped him. And because he couldn't advance anymore that way, he turned back his attention to his own regions, came back, and he began to actually ransack some of his own territory. And because he did that, the people got tired of him, and he, they murdered him. They killed their own king. And you know what the Bible said? Well, how did it finish? He turned his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and shall not be found. It's written, it happened. Well, that was the third A, Antiochus the Great. The last one, Antiochus Epiphanes, we've talked about. We talked a lot about this guy because he's in some of the other prophecies and visions of Daniel. This is the guy who is like, a symbol or a shadow of the future Antichrist king, okay? That Antichrist king is going to be the most violent leader ever in the history of mankind. And this guy is like a shadow of him. So he's going to be very evil, but not reach the levels of the next guy that he's a foreshadow of. We talked about him, if you remember this, and what he did and what he did to the Jews and the Jewish people. And now he was writing about it. But before, actually, there's this little period before him, because verse 20, after Antiochus the Great was murdered by his own people, verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute to the glory of the kingdom. So there's a very brief moment when Antiochus the Great died. It says this exactor, and he sent to the people. And you know what happened in history? It's basically a, excuse me, a tax collector who took over and began to take money to rebuild the kingdom. But it was short-lived, but I have to point it out because the Bible said it, and then it happened. It's still another fact. But Antiochus Epiphanes is the, is the next major guy. In verse 21, says, "...in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries." 
armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do whatever he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, he didn't have a, a, a legitimate claim, but Daniel says, despite that, through his flatteries, he takes power. That's what history records, that he came into power through these means of devising schemes, got a hold of power, but then he went in and found the richest parts and took the wealth out. And part of his scheme was to, 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 to bribe other people. As it says in Daniel, he divided up the spoils and built this, this coalition of support for himself, even some of which history records was like monetary support through military types, almost like mercenaries who augmented his strength militarily. That was what happened in history, and Daniel's writing about it. Verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south. Here we go again, king of the north versus king of the south, right? Over and over again. King of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. And for the end is yet to be at the same time, at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So Daniel writes about it, and it happens again in history. He we have the, the north and the south, two great armies, they fight again, but there's, there's no clear winner. And, and in this conflict, what happens is they try to come to the table and make a peace agreement. But what's interesting is Daniel says, both guys go to the table with evil in their heart and the intent to deceive one another. And the peace agreement is broken. I was reading, studying up for this, and there was this one comment a writer made. It says, every peace agreement ever made in history has been broken. I don't know the exact truth to that, but because there isn't peace in the world, you might think that's probably true. That, that, that somehow war continues to rage. And in this particular area, that's what happened. They couldn't settle it. But it says the king of the north goes back. He's wealthy. But he sets himself against the holy covenant. And if you remember, Antiochus Epiphanes came back and he tried to strip away the Jewish identity of the Jews. And he put in place um, fake gods and said, you must worship our gods. And that's what he began to put into place. Daniel wrote about it. It happened in history, okay? Then what happened? I don't know if you remember this because I talked about this when we studied Antiochus, but Rome comes back in, verse 29, at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Now what happened? Daniel writes about this. What happened is he tries to go with the south again. 
But it says there's this phrase, the ships of Kittim. Now, this is a reference towards Rome, that Rome began to make advances. It's very hard to fight a two-front war. And so he positioned himself to go south, but then he's getting news of the north, and he has to withdraw, and he's angry about that. And remember, all these things that happen, they, they, they harden his heart even greater and greater towards the Jews, towards God's people. But what happens, it says he turns back. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, in history, what happened was he tried to deal with the Romans, but lost and came back angry and really took it out on the Jews, began to persecute them. And I gave you some of the stories in that where they were, they were just murdering kids. And if you did not bow down and worship, we're going to kill you. It uses the phrase abomination of desolation. That's a term that says they came into the holy of holies. All of the sacred and holy things in, in the temple that to the Jews, they take a pig and they, they, they kill it. And, they, and he took the blood of that pig and smeared it all over their holy relics and holy, the altar as an abomination to what is holy. He actually did it. So Daniel writes about it. He did it in history. It says they stopped the, 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 the sacrifices. That's what he did. You can't make sacrifices anymore. You can't practice your faith. Daniel wrote about it. It happened in history. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And it goes on, really, the last, these verses here are talking about the Maccabean revolt. And I gave you a little bit of that history where one guy stood up to, uh, killed one of the uh, representatives forcing people to bow down to the fake God, and it started this, this revolt and it's known as the Maccabean Revolt, where eventually the Jews overthrow them and reestablish their own faith. And it, it brings about the rebuilding of the temple and the altar. This is where Hanukkah comes out of, the a feast that celebrates uh, the cleansing of the temple. All of this happens. Daniel writes about it. It happens in history. And here's one of the points to all this. Yes, the truth of God's Word but one of the points that's being made to Daniel, because Daniel doesn't doubt the truth of his word, but one of the points being made to Daniel is your land has got hundreds of years of war in its future. It's a war-weary land. Even today, peace in the Middle East is elusive. There's fighting that still goes on there. And there's this, this theme throughout what he's giving him. The north and the south and these superpowers always fighting. And where is Israel? They are passive presence. Now, today they're not. Today they're a nation. They fight back. They've got weaponry. You might be familiar with the Six-Day War when they became a nation. It wasn't soon between some of the surrounding nations trying to push them into the ocean. They can fight back. They are not passive now. But in this, they're passive. Now, I want you to remember that. Because that's the whole first point. A battle-weary land, 
Those are the prominent leaders that he gives us. Now, here's the second point. The battle of Armageddon, the final battle. That's why I'm landing. The whole theme's been fighting, fighting, battle, battle, battle. Now he's going to take us to the final, last battle before Christ comes back. Now, to give you a point of reference, Armageddon, Armageddon, the Hebrew word har means mountain. And we're talking about Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo, Harmageddon is the word that we get from that. It's a town, there, there's a town, the town of Megiddo actually guards the mountain pass. It's in northern Palestine, and down from that pass is an extended plain. And this is where the Bible says the last battle will take place. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte had something to say about the valley of Armageddon. You know what it was? He said, actually I wrote it down, he said, it's the greatest natural battlefield. And he thought, in his mind, he said, this is a place where all the great armies of the world might gather to fight. He was a fighter. He was a general. He was a tactician. And he said, this is the place. If there's any place that I know of where all the great armies of the world could come together to fight, it's this place, Armageddon. Well, wouldn't you know it? That's what the Bible says is going to happen. However, if you're thinking of it as a battle like like I, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, where these two armies will gather, the sun comes up, the two armies are on the field, they have a great fight, the sun goes down, there's lots of dead people, it's over. That is not how it will happen. It won't be a single day battle. It will be a campaign over a period of time, maybe something more like, if you're familiar with battles, Battle of the Bulge in World War II, where the Germans pressed into the Allied line. It wasn't a one day thing. It happened over a period of time, over different places, but... This is what the, the battle of Armageddon will actually be. It will be a series of battles and skirmishes. Now, that gives you a little bit of context. But what I want to do now is I'm going to read you this next section first because this is uh, leading up to this. Okay, this is the foreshadow. Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadowing the Antichrist. This is what it says. All this I'm going to read describes him, but it describes also the Antichrist. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself. And Antiochus Epiphanes could not do as he wills, as he wanted to. He was thwarted, but the Antichrist will not. Uh, he will magnify himself above every god, shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to, to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, if you go to Revelation, this is what you see, that the Antichrist lifts himself above all other gods. He makes himself a god, something that kings of the old used to do. They used to take on titles that gave themselves deity. He shall honor the God of fortress instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Again, he's starting to point you to the end. And then he clarifies it. Because the next phrase tells you that at the time of the end. Now this is, he's about to give you the last battle right here. And what I'm going to do, they've already put it up there. 
Just hold it there for a second. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to tell you who's involved in this battle, the last battle. But let me read this passage. Some of the, the, the people involved are not in this particular passage. We get them in other parts of the Bible, Revelation and Ezekiel. But let me read this. It says, at the, end, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. There's this south and north again. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now you're like, Pastor Kevin, this is like a f drinking out of a fire hydrant. So many verses today, I know. But what I'm trying to give you is, first of all, all the details of he wrote it and it happened. And I'm bridging to he wrote it and it hasn't happened yet, but it will. Now I'm going to have to summarize these two. Who is at the Battle of Armageddon? Now you notice some of the the players that were listed in there, Edom, Moab, where are they today? And this is how we know who some of the people are. Biblical, biblical scholars, they, they look at who the Edomites were and where they dwelt, and they go to who's dwelling there today, because what Daniel saw was the region, and those are the, the people from this region, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Cushites, where are they today? That's how we can figure out some of who these players are. Let me give them to you. Here's who shows up in the battle. The Ten Kingdom Federation, we already know. That's from the book of Daniel. The statue, you get to the very end, the toes and the feet. There's ten king, a Ten Kingdom presence. There's the King of the North, which fits with everything we've been seeing, and the King of the South. Okay, King of the North is countries directly north, including Russia. And there's a way also through like identifying names that are given to tie Russia to this or whoever might be in that region. But that's the region, Russia and her allies. Kings of the East are Asiatic in nature. And in Revelation, it says the great river Euphrates will dry up and a massive army from the East will cross over where it used to be to arrive at the battle. King of the South, this is an African representation. King of the South is a confederation of, of African powers. And then we have the Lord's army. That's, the, that's, that's who shows up at the very end in uh, Revelation 19. But there's also this other presence, Israel. And in all the fighting, guess what? She's passive again. Just like everything that they described, all these battles going on, and Israel's just a passive bystander, when we get to the end, it's the same. So all that he's given us is also like another foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Israel. So that's who. Now how? Well, how, how does this all unfold, Pastor? Okay, well, here's how. Here, remember I told you it's not one, a one-day thing, it's a sequence, right? Here's, here's how it unfolds. 
covenant is made between the Antichrist and Israel. We've already talked about that through our series. In other words, uh, the, the, the king or the leader of this ten-kingdom nation that's European in nature will make a peace treaty with Israel. We will protect you. We got your back. There's going to be peace, and it's, it's got our stamp on it, so people will respect that. That's a peace that agreement they make. Covenant is made. The next thing that will happen, Ezekiel 38, you can go there, it describes that the king of the north, and I just put the Rus Russian, invades, and it's described this way, that they sweep into unwalled cities, unprotected houses. Why would Israel be unprotected? I mean, today they've got lots of self-protection, one of the largest, most formidable armies technologically in the world. Well, why would they come to a point of being unprotected? And you have to go back to something with that peace agreement, something with a peace agreement that allows peace in the Middle East backed by the Tin King nation. Next thing that happens, north and south fight. We get this out of Daniel. It says south comes up and fights with the north and there's fighting that goes on again. The next thing that happens after the north and the south, the Antichrist moves in while the north and the south are weak. Basically what happens is the north and the south fight so much that they decimate each other and the ten kingdom nation who's supposed to be a protector comes in and what it says is it takes the wealth of Israel. It comes in to a weakened by war area and takes control while they're weak. Then you go to Revelation. At that point, we see it says the, the river dries up and this Asiatic uh, federation or presence comes across and they arrive for the battle. And then what happens is, I'm waiting for it, the Lord's army appears, Revelation 19. And some of this you have to, to think about how it would unfold because at the very end, it's like all of these armies suddenly go, wait a minute, that army. And they come together to say, we're not going to survive that army unless we're together. So as they've been fighting and decimating each other, suddenly they need each other. They become allies to stand against Christ and his army. Is that the last? Yeah, why? This is where we land, why? And the answer to this is, is twofold. And it really has to do with God's discipline and judgment. Israel, a passive, passive again, getting trampled on by all the superpowers of the world. Well, you know what? If they had not turned from their God, they would never be in that state. All of this is happening because of their sinful rebellion. And the Bible says that He's allowing it to happen as judgment upon Israel for their rebellion. But one day He will come back and turn their hearts back to Him. But it's a hard thing to go through. And the second part is judgment upon the nations. Okay, there's a verse in Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, it says that God will gather the nations to punish them for, for their uh, persecution of Israel. There's also a judgment of, these, of the nations, the Gentile nations of the earth who have come against His people. And that goes back to the first promises in the Bible that God made. If you bless Israel... I will bless you. If you curse Israel, I will curse you. They are my people. If you stand against them, you stand against me. And he will come against the nations who have done that. Now, 
I've got to land this thing. Here's how I'm going to land it. I think there's two points for us today to learn from this, okay? And the first is we should learn from Israel. If you're somebody who says, I have a faith, but you go outside the will of God and you're rebellion, you should look at Israel. You may be a person who there are circumstances to life where they're trampling upon you because God's allowing it as a, as, a, as a form of discipline because you're in rebellion to Him. When you're in the will of God, God God's protecting you. God, or, or He won't allow, nothing will happen to you He doesn't allow. But with Israel, it was very direct. If you turn against me, I will bring judgment against you. Now, in our Christian faith, it's not quite exact the same. We don't have that kind of covenant. We live with a relationship of grace, but for sure discipline. If we go outside the will of God, we put ourselves in a position to be disciplined by Him. We should see that with Israel. It's something to learn. They're going through all these hundreds of years of being trampled on because they rebelled and turned away from Him. And there's, a, there's an aspect that is about faith. Do you really have faith? Do you have faith in the totality of His Word? Because a lot of us have faith in partiality. I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to believe in the Savior part, but there's so much of my life, I, 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 I want to be my own master. I want to be my own king. And we, we rebel. We say no to certain things. And we say, I'm going to, I, when it comes to our, our, our sexual ethics, when it comes to um, um, how we treat one another, are we forgiving? Are we gracious? What does he say about power? What does he say about money and how we use those things? We want to be the master of those things ourselves.